Hey, No Wrong Answers listeners, this is Kyle Palmer, host and creator of No Wrong Answers. We want to thank you so much for listening and supporting our podcast. Because of you, we are now set with this episode to launch what we're calling Season 2. We have some exciting plans, and we want to get you more involved in this season. To do that, we have created a shared community feedback form. This is a shared Google Doc that any of you can access. Just go to our Facebook page, and if you haven't liked us yet, go ahead and like us. Go to the Facebook page. The community feedback form is right there. Click on the link, and you're taken to it. You can offer feedback on the latest episode, like the one you're about to listen to. You can give us ideas for upcoming episodes. Maybe something's happening at your school and your district with your kids and families that you think needs to be talked about. You can suggest that to us. And starting next episode, we are beginning an Ask the Teachers segment. So on this community feedback form, you can ask questions or seek advice from our teachers, and they will answer your questions and give you advice on our podcast. We may even reach out to you, if you're okay with it, and have you record your question to play on our podcast for our teachers. So, we want to hear from you. No Wrong Answers is your teacherly take on the world, and the more teachers we hear from, the better our podcast will be. Thanks for listening. Enjoy the first episode of Season 2 of No Wrong Answers. It's been another tough week in America. How do you talk to your students of color about the events in Charlottesville? And how do you talk to your white students about it? That, plus a new law in Florida, allows parents to more easily challenge teachers' curriculum. Does that bother our teachers? You may be surprised. Those topics plus, our teachers tell us how their schools are celebrating the great American eclipse. Hours of unstructured time, blackout glasses, what could go wrong? All that coming up on the No Wrong Answers podcast. Welcome to No Wrong Answers, the weekly podcast that gives you a teacherly take on the world. I guess we can call this the official launch of Season 2. I'm your host, Kyle Palmer. I'm a former teacher turned public radio journalist, and I'm joined, as always, by a group of hardworking teachers who are about to get a lot more hardworking because they all go back to school with students this week. So let's introduce them. Bakari Oku'u. What do you now do in education? Vice principal at a middle school. And when do you have students? Tomorrow. Tomorrow, the Tomorrow. day after we take yes. this, we are taking Winter is here. <laughs> <laughs> Elaine Jordan, what do you teach and when do your students come? I teach eighth grade math and they come on Thursday. <laughs> and Rebecca McIntosh, you are on the end of the table. What do you teach and when I do your teach students come? elementary school and I'll be seeing my folks on Thursday. So all within the next week, students come, arrive, and the school year, like it or not, begins. Well, thank you all for spending some time to tape what is the start of season two of No Wrong Answers. And to start this episode, we're going to be very frank. We're going to call an audible and talk about a topic that uh, we all agree cannot not be talked about. We are taping on a Sunday, uh, less than 24 hours after the events that you have likely been following coming from Charlottesville, Virginia, um, a rally that started as a coalition of white supremacist organizations, including the KKK, neo-Nazis, um, a long-planned rally in Charlottesville uh, devolved into real chaos as counter-protesters also um, went to the scene and a person plowed their vehicle, um, a car, into a group of counter-protesters. One person um, at the time of this taping uh, was killed. Several more, uh, more than a dozen in fact, uh, were injured 
And just at the start of the school year, um, this happens again. And I, I must say it's, by my count, the fourth summer in a row where something a big breaking national news um, that is disturbing and unfortunate and in a lot of ways very frightening um, happens um, pretty close to the beginning of the school year and you come back and, and, and find, have to find some way to um, address it or think about addressing it. So for you all here at, at the table today, Bukhari, Elaine, um, Rebecca, I, I guess I'll just start by saying, like, what are you feeling? It's less than 24 hours since all this happened. And what are you feeling, but not only that, but what are you feeling in regards to how you think it might impact or, or how it should affect your first days and weeks at school? Personally, find myself somewhat grappling with the reaction that I feel like America has to these type of incidents. Um, as you know, that this is like fourth year in a row, and I feel like there's still like this undue pressure for people of color to unpack and to deal with. And then there's like this lack of acceptance and, and realization that this is America every day. And so as an educator, to me, these moments create a, our, our, our catalyst for a moment of pause and really understanding what we do as educators and the role that we can actually play in society at large. And like when I think about these, these people at this rally, like these, are gonna, these are people who go back to their real lives and they, they go back to being a banker who denies a loan. They go back to being a teacher who sends a kid out, who puts them into that school to prison pipeline. These are, our every, these are fathers and mothers who are raising children to believe the same thing that they believe. And if we don't as a country come together and have a conversation. I think for me, when I'm following social media and seeing people's response to it, it just feels very much like more about how we can distance ourselves from it versus how can we actually handle it, particularly white Americans who are wanting to make sure that we know that that is not like me, that those are not like me, um, they are not like me. And so trust me, believe in me, let me be your ally. And I feel like if you, for me, I just, I need to see more proof in the pudding of this allyship. Um, and holding people accountable versus just letting it go. So let me, let me ask, and you're going to be in a position where you are overseeing teachers, right? You're going to be mm -hmm. interacting more with, with teachers this year as opposed to not just students anymore in, as right. an administrative role. Um, how do you talk about something like this with a, a white colleague? What do you want to – I mean, you started to talk about it. What do you want to see out of them or what do you – what kind of I conversation want, do you want I want have? them to be able to – lean into their discomfort that it may cause, um, but to also understand that it's just as valuable for students to see a white teacher or to see a teacher, period, grappling with the issues of today in a very humanistic way and know that I, they don't have all the answers, but they know that it's, it's so important that I have to be vulnerable enough with you to let you know that something, either this doesn't sit well with me or I'm not sure why this is still happening or that I don't have the answers, but I wanted to create a space. To me, I want to empower teachers to be able to create a space for the conversation to take place in their classroom. For me, as a, when I think about like our staff professional development and spaces that we come together as a full team, I want to also create that space. One of the things we did as part of our back-to-school professional development is we really looked, took the time to dig into why do we do this work. Every teacher on our staff did, went through this process of identifying our why and identifying our mission and what is our purpose for being educators. And so I think grounding that back, uh, grounding these type of instances back into that piece and like how does that then inform our mission? How does that then inform our why is what I would say. Um, again, I don't have all the answers. I'm still working through this and I'm still trying to gain a better understanding. But I think as educators, we have to show the humanistic side of this and be more vulnerable with our students to say, this is not okay. Let's talk about it. I want, to, I want you to be able to air your grievances, air your issues, and then come together in a more productive way moving forward. Uh, for all of you, um, 
Vicar, you have students tomorrow on, on mm-hmm. the day we're taping this, Lane and Rebecca later in the week. But I guess, do you expect students to express uh, anxiety, fear, um, worry over things that they're seeing on TV, uh, over things that they're reading about, um, following this news story? Um, as we've mentioned several times, and as Bakari pointed out, I mean, this, for a lot of students, this is not going to be new. I mean, this, these are these are, I mean, problems that have been occurring, you know, day after day, week after week, year after year. Um, do you anticipate having conversations with students about um, their own anxiety or fear? I do. I think it probably won't be an overt conversation that this is the thing that is troubling me, teacher. Um, but I think it'll play into the general trauma that's involved with transitioning back to school, the trauma of being off schedule all summer and that return to routine. Um, I think it's going to be re-triggering for some students and that'll have anxiety anyway. I think, as you say, I'll have a lot of students that will be oblivious to it, and it'll be my responsibility to, to be sure everybody's in a safe place to be able to talk about it wherever they are, to meet them where they are. Um, but I think absolutely it'll just be one more variable in what is ordinarily a very stressful time, the back to school. And this is one more added component to an already really uncomfortable time for a lot of kids. I think this is actually a really appropriate time to have the type of, these type of conversations. Given that it's back to school, many districts are not... Those first two weeks are not dedicated to the curriculum and, and these standards of anything. It's all about building relationships and building a caring environment. And I think if you're teaching black and brown students, if you're teaching, if you're teaching period at this juncture, regardless of the color of your, of your students, the race of your students, again, this is a conversation everyone needs to be aware of and be having. And I think particularly when you're teaching black and brown children, though, that it articulates that I care and I, I get things that are impacting you and I, I want to learn more about how you are navigating this world in a way that... Th- the media and the way that um, events across this country could impact you. And so I think if we're not talking about it, if I was a student and I had a teacher didn't, that did not address this, in my mind is that they're intentionally not addressing it. Therefore, they are showing me that they do not care. So I would encourage all teachers to engage in this conversation because it does set that tone. There's this saying that kids don't care how much you know until they know how much you care. And if you're not having these conversations, in my mind, you don't care. Since oh, oh, a rally of white supremacist, racist, um, neo-Nazis, KKK members was at the heart of this. Um, is there a, a particular concern you have about addressing um, white students? Um, do you anticipate white students bringing this up or um, even, um, as you mentioned before, maybe intentionally trying to distance themselves without maybe reflecting on, on, on greater social forces? Right. So, okay, I see what you're saying. All right. So the thing that this makes me think about is there's um, there's this cartoon and it's kids lined up along a fence and they're trying to Mm. see a baseball game. Mm -hmm. Right. And you have a kid who is just I think he's white and he's just tall and he can just see over the fence. And then there are kids of color that like can't see over the fence and there are boxes to make them more level playing field so everyone can see, you know, and it's kind of talking about equality. Or you hear that exercise that teachers do where they have kids seated in rows and the object is to throw a wadded up paper ball into the trash can in the front. And the kids in the front are way more accurate than the kids in the back just because of proximity. And it all comes down to privilege. And that's the conversation I think we need to have with our white students. Because when I was in middle school, I was certainly not aware of white privilege in any type of meaningful way. 
Um, and I think that that's true for a lot of my students, too, is that they just see uh, whiteness as the default setting. Mm-hmm. And they're very accepting of that because they really haven't ever been challenged on it before. And that's where we can come in and start framing those conversations for them. And like building on that, I read an article recently, actually, um, by a teacher out of Atlanta, uh, Shamar Knight Justice. Shout out to Shamar. Um, who wrote an article about how teachers perpetuate white supremacy. Uh, He laid out three ways. One of them is silence, just not having the conversation at all. Um, And then two is the curriculum that we continue to teach, these Eurocentric values and systems and um, histories to children of color and to white children. And the same thing, he notes notes that white children also need to be exposed to narratives outside Mm -hmm. of their their own histories Mm -hmm. as well. Um, and then the third thing was this perpetuation of the school to prison pipeline and the way that we discipline students in the in the system. And so I definitely agree that this is a conversation that is not just a black and brown conversation. It's a, we need to have that conversation. But I think what we, the challenge is that as education, we we focus a lot on students, but the adults are the ones who facilitate that. And and adults, there are many educators who mm-hmm. either choose to distance themselves from this notion of white privilege and and white supremacy, so they don't even know. Are they not? They refuse to engage in that conversation with students. So I think we also have to hold ourselves accountable. And how do we frame this for adults who are in the who are facilitating the education of our kids? What would you say to a colleague who, I don't know, expressed, if not outright racist views, and expressed an idea of, well, I'm not going to talk about this in class, or I don't feel like we need to, or it's not my place, or we're over it by now. Um, that, so one, I would talk about the, just being culturally responsive and, and being relevant for your students. And if it's something that's impacting our kids and that definitely needs to be discussed and addressed in the classroom Two, then I will look at, I'm going to assume that if a teacher has these mindsets, particularly with children of color, then that's going to permeate all of their data and their achievement data, the way that they handle students. And they, that will lead itself to other uh, more tangible conversation around like our teaching standards, um, our Missouri teaching standards, and I'll be able to go back and say, well, here's a way that this is not, this behavior, this mindset is not um, aligned to this teaching standard, does not align to this outcome that is desired by our school or our district. Re- Rebecca, you're a union official. I am, yeah. and I'm thinking about these conversations that we're going to have to have um, with adults as well as with, with young people. Um, I think at, at the very bottom of the pyramid at the very basic thing um, it's my responsibility to not allow that conversation with my white students or my white colleagues to to be provocative they're not allowed to make these statements to to throw grenades into a room for reaction they're not allowed to make the jokes the standard in my classroom the standard in my building will be that that is not tolerated and I know I have the full support of my administration with that and, and with the majority of our colleagues. And, and we know that that is the standard we will, we will maintain in our culture, in our building. Um, and I think if, if that occurs, you have, to, you have to meet that person where they are. But it's not a conversation you can have on the fly. It's not a conversation you can have. Um, you know, it's going to be many conversations and it's going to be bigger than standards and data. And it's going to be, we're going to need to talk about what mm-hmm. the mission is. But I need to go back to the original question. You know, the conversation that I'll have with my white kids with my white colleagues is, you know, this is not tolerated. If and when it occurs, we're going to yeah. sit and talk. And here, you're you, you're not free of the consequences of of those of that speech. And so we're going to have a conversation about that and uh, the, when the, it's appropriate to do it and when it's not. And well, I would say I yeah. the, the, I guess what I struggle with it. I, I feel like and that's that's the line that is often defined. It's like it's not tolerated. 
I think it's commonly accepted that it's not tolerated, quote unquote. But at the same time, we're not doing anything to stop it from happening. I think to me, there has like this. There has to be like this active anti-racist movement in order for it to not be tolerated. Mm-hmm. Right now, we 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 rest on the fact that oh, that that to me is that distance. That oh, that's not me. I don't tolerate it. I don't allow it. But it still exists, and I'm not doing anything to actively make it not exist. It's my responsibility to do that publicly. My kids have to hear me saying the words. They have to see me living it. And I have to set that standard. But I mean, have you ever had the experience of calling out a colleague and having it fall on deaf ears? Like, oh, yeah. oh, all the I time. Know, right? Yes. And all the time. I think sometimes like that's where it's uh, it gets challenging for me. Sure. So, for example, I had a colleague last year ask me where I was going to have my baby. And I said where it was going to be. And she's like, oh, thank goodness it's not that ghetto hospital. And I was like, what on earth do you mean by that? And she just kept going, like didn't even miss a beat. And I was like, oh, my gosh, I have a lot more work to do in myself, too, and like calling people out and holding them accountable because I was so taken Mm -hmm. aback and unprepared for how deeply held some of these beliefs are. And I don't know that I have the full support of my administration, honestly. I would love to say that I do, but Mm -hmm. I don't really know where they stand because we don't have that open space. And and to me, that's that's part of the, the issue. So when we don't know as adults where we stand in the work that we're doing as educators for the next generation and how can we then expect that to be taking place with our kids. And I think that, again, we have to model that. So to your point earlier around that it's bigger than standards and data and that that's multiple conversations, I agree. And at the same time, we cannot... It is not my job to change the mindset of teachers. It's my job to help them become more effective instructors and educators in the classroom. If I find, like, if I find that teachers are not aligned mindset-wise, and that to me is a matter of coaching them up and out, not necessarily let me make sure that you can fake it till you make it. You don't fake it till you make it with mindset. When I when I think about the impact of a mindset like those, even when it's implicit, it still comes out in your instruction. It still comes out in the way that you deal with kids. And there's still going to be some discrimination and prejudice around those biases that so you, you hold. So you're saying if, if, if you encounter a teacher who considers some hospitals ghetto, <laughs> for instance, <laughs> um, you, I mean, you would actually... You, I, I mean, c- coach them up and out of the profession. Like maybe that pr- that person doesn't. No, out of the building. Out so of the building. So, and I don't. I wouldn't say something is like a, they think something's ghetto. To me, that's just a matter of. I'm talking about something that's deeply rooted that I don't believe that these children can learn or, mm-hmm. or this is the maximum they would be able to produce or actually that's good enough for them. That like When it's those type of mindset, that those lowered expectations, those I'm not going to go the full mile for my student, for those students, then at that point, it is a matter of you're not a good fit for my building. You're not a good fit for my kids. And I firmly believe that if you don't believe fully 100% in what's possible for our kids, you need not be in our building, period. Mm-hmm. That's not a matter of, oh, let me help you use this instructional strategy better. That's a mindset that does not belong in my building at all. Yeah. That doesn't belong in front of any kid, honestly, but right, right. definitely not in mine. Our podcast today is sponsored by Teach for America Kansas City, which believes one day all children will have the opportunity to attain an excellent education. You can make an immediate impact on that mission in Kansas City. To find out how, visit teachforamerica.org or find them on Twitter at TFA underscore KC and on Instagram at TFA KC. Uh, well, as, uh, as we mentioned a couple times, nearly the start of school uh, for our teachers. Part of that preparation, of course, is planning your curriculum, and that entails picking a textbook to use, maybe. Um, your district picks it for you. Maybe you have some say in that. 
Uh, or if you're an English teacher, history or humanities, it also involves selecting what books your kids are going to read as a class, what text and primary source documents you're going to pull from. Uh, well, this story made the news in Florida, and we wanted to talk about it. It has to do with curriculum and textbooks. A new state law in Florida allows parents, any residents of a school district, in fact, to more easily challenge schools' use of textbooks and curricular materials they find objectionable. This is how the law works. A parent or resident can object to the use of a textbook or any curricular material they find potentially unsuitable. Once an objection is made, a local school board must conduct what the law says is a, quote, open public hearing before an unbiased qualified hearing officer who is not an employee of that district. The objecting parent or resident must then provide evidence that the specified material does not meet standards or contains prohibited content or otherwise inappropriate or unsuitable material for that grade level or students. If at this hearing the material or textbook is found to be unsuitable, the school district will be obliged to stop using it. In addition, this law requires school districts to provide access to any material contained in school libraries upon request and also requires schools maintain online lists of textbooks and materials used. NPR reports this law was pushed by a conservative-leaning group called the Florida Citizens Alliance, a group that says on its website that it wants to, quote, stop federal overreach and restore our individual rights. In that same NPR story, proponents of this curricular review law cite as objectionable material such things as a clockwork orange, books by Toni Morrison, as well as some textbooks, depiction of Islam, and, of course, climate change and evolution. What level of involvement should parents or any residents outside of your classroom have in what you teach? I welcome the conversation. Let's talk about it. You want to come in and see what we're doing? Come in. We are desperate to have you come in. Come see what we do all day. Um, I think that's fantastic. Anytime you want to see what we're talking about at any given time, come be a part of the conversation. Come see what's happening, what it really looks like. Um, what comes before, what comes after, what it's a part of the bigger piece. I think that's a Are great you, thing. Do you support then giving I residents have, more easy, more easily available to object to, formally to, object to what you teach? I have to laugh at the, the statement you said they were, they were trying to avoid overreach, and but they're putting in hearing officers in this new <laughs> process now. There's no overreach there at all, is there? Um, I don't know what that feels like in Florida. I don't know what that looks like or what the rules are around it. But uh, anytime somebody wants to come in to the building and talk about what the work we're doing with kids is, I, I would welcome that conversation. Bukhari, you look like you were going to say something. I guess my question is, how much influence should they then have on what you teach? Let's, I mean, let's say they do object to something you're teaching. What what then would you would you say? Well, what then you... we go to the, we're going to have that process. We're going to follow that process. What's your objection? Is your information accurate? Is my information accurate? Um, let's get it out there in public. Let's be absolutely transparent about it and see what the reality of the situation is so that your concern is addressed as parent, as patron um, and that any misinformation is, is corrected. If would there's you, any. Do you ever foresee a circumstance that, uh, of something that you teach that you would be willing to take something out of your curriculum that you've taught in the past because someone doesn't like it? They'd have to demonstrate a really <laughs> good reason because pretty much everything's okay in my room. Um, we'd have to, They'd have to make a really compelling case. 
Oh, I don't think dude. you can rule it out. I don't think you can rule it out. You're going to have to have discourse with people. They are the community you're serving. And if it's objectionable, you're going to have to be sensitive to their concern. Whether or not that results in censorship or in a change in what something, something is happening in the building is not necessarily the end of that conversation. Elaine. So I agree with you about hearing their concerns, but this makes me think about specifically Common Core math. Sure. And how many parents are like, I don't want you teaching my kid Common Core math. Okay. Well, there's and you've a, had you've had parents tell yeah, you this before. Definitely. Yeah. And it's like, okay, so we can we can unpack that and I'm happy to talk with them about it and I'm happy to have them in any time. I have yet to have a parent take me up on that. But I also feel that my professional judgment is is worth something. And I don't know, ultimately, that I would remove something just for every student because one parent found it objectionable. I could see providing an alternative assignment, perhaps. Mm. But, I mean, I don't know. Like what we were talking about earlier, if you have a community that is trying to marginalize a group of people through literature, history, texts, do we allow that to stand? I mean, I'm not really comfortable with that. So I guess my thought would be, even if it's objectionable, as long as... I think I'm doing the right thing. I'd probably keep well, doing the, it. Well, you know, there's there's a couple of classes of objectionable material that are laid out, at least in this NPR article, right? right? There's, mm-hmm. There is material that parents find objectionable because of its content, like A Clockwork Orange mm-hmm. or Toni Morrison, Nobel laureate, um, or arguments over facts, right? Like if you disagree mm-hmm. with evolution, but that, that's, right. a, that's a different that, – that seems to me a different type of argument than like, oh – that I find this material to be, you know, objectionable because there's sex in it or there's cursing. Right. Oh, I agree. It's kind of like disagreeing with math. I feel like that kind of falls in with like the evolution debate is that I think sometimes the layman's terms for things kind of mask what's really going on. Like calling evolution a theory is different than how most people use theory just in their everyday mm-hmm. conversations. And so I guess how would you how would you address those two classes of concerns differently? You know, something based on, on fact where maybe your professional judgment has more leverage and sway as opposed to something where someone just doesn't want their kid reading A Clockwork Orange. I think with things like A Clockwork, a clockwork Orange, I'm happy providing an alternative text that meets that same objective. Maybe I was teaching it for theme. I can have something else that's going to be on that same theme that I'm trying to get to, whatever. Um, with the facts, I'm a little bit more reluctant to change a position. Do you feel like this law takes – is trying to take power out of the hands of teachers, uh, educators, uh, calling their professional judgment into question? Absolutely. I think it absolutely is. and But I don't think that that has to be the result of it. I think it's an attempt, but I think I think teachers know what they're doing. And you trust you trust the teacher. I, yes, I agree that you definitely want to lean, err on the side of like the professional judgment, assuming that these are teachers who are highly trained and, and understand and are experienced and, and get it. I think to Elaine's point and to the, the distinguishing factors of what do you find objectionable, I think that's where it depends on what the objection is for me. Um, even in those moments where like, yeah, I guess we could like a clockwork orange, like I feel like you could provide an alternative assignment. Then it's like, what is, what is that risk by doing that? Like, what do you Removing and I think there's an, it's important that I think articulate to parents that 
part of our role is to expose our kids to more than just their bubble. And and I think that if we're not doing that, then we're actually doing our kids a disservice. So I definitely think to Rebecca's mm-hmm. point, it's a conversation worth having. I do feel like this law, this approach does kind of um, try to take away the the authority and the um, respect of teachers. At the same time, I think it could be spin, spun in a way that says we're also trying to engage parents more actively in the educational environment as well. So I th- it just depends on the the way that parents approach it. Getting in front of it is, is definitely the best um, solution, recognizing that not all parents are ever going to be 100% on board. Well, let's move on to our next segment. Uh, it's back. The Betsy Breakdown. A few weeks ago, we introduced a new segment, what we um, are calling the Betsy Breakdown. It may not be every week, but it will be regularly reoccurring where we look in on what's happening with our Secretary of Education, Betsy DeVos. First topic, Ed Week reports DeVos has increased her family's financial stake in a company called NeuroCore, a brain performance company that purports to improve symptoms of conditions like ADHD and autism through so-called neurofeedback sessions in which patients can purportedly be trained to have their brains function better. Many brain... <laughs> Many brain researchers question NeuroCore's claims. Ed Week cites a recent American Academy of Pediatrics study that concluded there was limited evidence such neurofeedback sessions worked. Recent financial disclosure forms show DeVos's investment, either made personally or through her family, has increased by more than $5 million in NeuroCore since, since she was confirmed as Secretary of Education. So really quickly, this is going to be round-robin, lightning round, teachers Federal ethics officials have approved DeVos's latest financial disclosures, and experts tell Ed Wheat there are no clear ethical violations with this. Do you agree or disagree? Do you have a problem with this? Well, I believe the ethics review that is put in place for Secretary DeVos is appointed by her, and um, they, the state, their statement was that we have to trust that she will recuse herself should she want to read the bumps on the children's heads in this rejection of science and data is just, it further underscores how far removed she is from the job she has been put in to do. Elaine. It's concerning to me that the Secretary of Education thinks that autism is something that needs to be cured and is not just part of the spectrum of At least through her, through, through her investments. Through her, oh, yeah, and I think your money speaks. Mm-hmm. And so that um, really marginalizes a group of students. McCoy. Not surprised. <laughs> Next topic, Betsy DeVos also recently sat down for her first extended interview with a media outlet since being confirmed as Secretary of Education. She talked with the Associated Press, and in that interview, she uh, walked back or tried to walk back uh, her controversial statements made in February about historically black colleges and universities. We talked about this at the time. You may remember she referred to HBCUs as, quote, pioneers of school choice, comments that earned her widespread criticism from groups like the NAACP and the HBCUs themselves. In her latest interview, she said it had not been her intention uh, to say what she said, but to instead say the HBCUs had been, quote, pioneering on behalf of students that did not have another choice. She went on to say that though her work as a school choice advocate and operator of charter schools in her home state of Michigan, that she has, in fact, spent a career campaigning on behalf of marginalized (laughs) groups of students and children of color. Rebecca? Saying, quote, that's where my heart has been for three decades is to really empower and allow all families the same kind of opportunities I've had for my kids. She did also admit, apropos to her previous HBCU comments, she would 
have uh, more forcefully decried racism during that February statement, which, of course, February was um, Black History Month. Betsy DeVos, civil rights champion. We've talked about her efforts to recover from her rocky beginning to her tenure. Um, is she, is, is, the, is the Betsy DeVos recovery tour um, moving the needle at all for you, at, at all? Is there any, any, any change in your feelings? Well, I think it's safe to say that Secretary DeVos has reached Kelly Conway levels of proportion in spin. She she is doing a marvelous job of repackaging that message and putting words. It's when I hear her, I hear a mouthful of marbles. She's the words don't even make sense to me anymore that she would package her position and what and her work now on affirmative action and running away from that and any type of advocacy for any marginalized group in our schools from LGBT to students of color to victims of sexual assault. She's running away from these groups. There's no protection happening for them. Uh, I, I just hear noise when she talks now. Just the noise. No, Bakari? Is hard. Naked, because writing naked is public hard. relations. Thank you. I'm, I'm, yeah, I, I can't with Betsy. She just, I think, yeah. We and we've, but we've discussed this before, right? Like the, the you are clearly frustrated, very much. I and just you, and you say you can't because she's she, yeah. I don't I don't have the words to articulate. I I feel like so we talked earlier in the show about like the ralliers and they they're, they're talking in they, Charlottesville, right? And they talked about I think they're one of their rally cries was you're not going to replace me or you can't replace us or something to that effect. Jews not going to replace me. Well, that was one quote, of them too. Yes, yes. Um, I just think that when I think about the impact, I feel like she would have been out there marching with those type of people. Like the work that she's doing and the, and the impact that she has is very similar to what they're crying out about. And I feel that I for her that to might say, be a little strong though. I don't know. It yeah. may be strong, but that's how I feel. And that it feels like she says that I've been three decades working on behalf of minorities and oppressed communities, and yet I don't see evidence of that. Like you, she sounds like those people, I've helped this one person. I've helped mm-hmm. that person of color. I helped that person of color. But systematically, she continues mm-hmm. to perpetuate the same ills that have oppressed and marginalized those same communities. And so I feel like when she's given this position, she could be doing a lot more on behalf mm-hmm. of, of oppressed communities and minorities, particularly in the education sector. And instead, she's choosing to, to side with those who have oppressed and continue to make money off the backs of this system. Yeah. Uh, well, jumping off of that mm-hmm. uh, in the final topic of our Betsy breakdown, it does not involve Betsy DeVos directly, I should say, but it has to do with the Trump administration, and it touches upon education very much so. The New York Times reported this month that an internal Justice Department document shows the Trump administration is uh, at least preparing to investigate colleges and universities and possibly sue them over those schools, quote, based on the memo that the New York Times got a hold of, quote, intentional race-based discrimination in admissions. The document itself does not say that this involves affirmative action, but it's widely interpreted as a move against affirmative action policies in college admissions. Critics called the move deeply disturbing. We should say the U.S. Supreme Court in the past has ruled that race-based factors can be considered as part of a, quote, holistic admissions policy in higher education. So as educators of students whom you are presumably trying to push towards and prepare for college... Is this concerning? And in what ways? How do you feel about it? Well, it's terrifying on many levels. One of the greatest of which is that our Department of Education is not a part of this at all, which may or may not be a bad thing considering who's in charge right now. But there, the, this, this action is coming through the Justice Department rather than the Department of Education Office of Civil Rights, which 
seems like they're going to have they would hopefully have something relevant to say about this topic, but they are not part of this conversation at all at yeah. this point. Um, and that's terrifying. Um, Elaine Bakari. Uh, oh, sorry. Uh, I'm, I, that's all. Are you sure? I can say no more. Okay. Um, actually, back in the early 2000s was my first real conversation in school about white privilege, and it was regarding the University of Michigan using um, like a race. The law school. Yeah, and mm-hmm. they were doing whatever points mm-hmm. kind of system. Anyway, so it was really an eye-opening time for me, and I feel like affirmative action has done a lot of good. The, th- the question that started bumping around in my mind was about legacy admissions, though. It's like, so if we remove affirmative action, legacy admissions are still a thing. So the playing field is even more unequal than it was before. And when you say legacy admissions, you're talking about white students who are going to the college that their fathers and grandfathers or grandmothers and mothers went to. And that is a form of <laughs> um, not affirmative action, but a form of favoritism shown in admissions. For yeah, sure. I feel like it's the flip side of affirmative yeah. action. <laughs> uh, well, uh, that's it for this edition of the Betsy Breakdown. Um, our regular look at what is going on in the world of Secretary of Education Betsy DeVos. It may not be every week, but really, (laughs) there's going to be something happening pretty regularly. All right, we normally end the show with a segment we call Kids These Days. You're still not quite back with kids, so you're not caught up to date on the latest kid trends, are you? You can admit it. It's fine. So we'll end today with something else that's very much trending, at least in our neck of the woods in the Kansas City area. The Great American Eclipse, parts of our metropolitan area, will be in the so-called path of totality, where we will see the moon move fully in front of the sun, at least for a bit of time, and darken out the sun's light in the middle of the day. Hundreds of thousands, if not millions, of people are expected to travel to Missouri and the surrounding areas on August 21st and the weekend before. You feel like I'm hyping it up, Bakari. Hotels in our area have been sold out for months. Some people made reservations literally years ago. It's all very exciting. And we should say the total eclipse is spanning the entire American continent from Oregon to Georgia and will be able to be seen in its totality along a narrow band of territory all along a diagonal across the U.S. So this is happening August 21st. You all will be in school already. Your kids will have come back. So I'm wondering, as we end the day today, what are you doing for the eclipse? Do you... uh, individually or your schools plan on doing something special. Rebecca is the most excited to talk about this, I can tell. I am so jazzed about this, I can't even tell you. And my secondary friends are not. So I'll take that. It's it's huge for elementary kids. This is a great opportunity. We I've got shirts. We've got glasses. I've only got two and a half days. I've only got till 11 o'clock on Monday to get them ready and get out there to see it. So you have shirts like that you've ordered? I have, you... I have a teacher shirt. We won't have little people okay. shirts. I mean, I've got wardrobe prepared, but I've got... Do you have glasses? Have you got uh, glasses got, for everyone? And they're approved glasses. Okay. We're going to be safe. All right. Elena Bacara, you teach mm-hmm. secondary. Mm-hmm. I, is anybody else worried about behavior that day? I oh, mean, yeah. a full moon does things, and I don't even know <laughs> what a total eclipse will do. Um, anyway, our whole district has glasses. We're doing stack lunches that day, oh. taking the kids outside. Um, yeah, it should be interesting, I think, but I feel like it's a little loosey-goosey, and, you know, I'm not going to know everybody's names two and a half days right. in, so here we go. Bakari. So we actually have something similar to Elaine. Um, our district purchased glasses for everyone in our district and provided lesson plans for the range of grade levels. Um, and then it's up to the building how they actually implement it. Our building, we are doing sack lunches and having basically uh, outdoor, because it's taking place during our lunchtime. So students have sack lunches right. and we'll be watching it from 
our soccer field. Millions, Bakari, <laughs> descending on this area. <laughs> Happy eclipsing. Well, that will do it for this episode of No Wrong Answers. We should say Teach for America Kansas City is the underwriter of this podcast, but No Wrong Answers retains total editorial control. And what our teachers say are their personal opinions, which may not reflect the official policies of the schools and districts they work for. Like us at Facebook. Follow us on Twitter. Just search for the No Wrong Answers podcast by Fountain City Frequency. And again, when you go to our Facebook page, log on to our shared community feedback Google Doc and give us some ideas for future shows and ask us questions for an upcoming Ask the Teachers segment. Find us at iTunes or wherever you get your podcasts. Once you find us, subscribe and leave us a review. It helps. There are no other podcasts like ours, giving you a teacherly take on the world If you've enjoyed the conversation you've heard today, subscribe, leave us a review, and keep the conversation going. Thanks to our teachers this week, Rebecca McIntosh, Elaine Jordan, Bakari Uku'u. Thanks, as always, to Matt Hodap, who produces the podcast. Thank you to KCUR 89.3, Kansas City Public Radio, where we tape. Good luck with students this week, guys. Thank you. We'll need it. (laughs) Week one. I'm Kyle Palmer, and remember, kids, be nice to your teachers. Be nice to your teachers.